Beautiful. Cool. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. And the title of my study today is Testing Jesus. It's like my wife, when she heard that title, she said, are you sure you want Testing Jesus? And, and you know, what we're going to look at, just as a, as a spoiler alert on this passage, is when the Pharisees tested Jesus in particular. And when I think of the times in my life that I have been put through tests, I know that God has allowed them in my life. And I see that God has always shown himself in my life to be faithful and powerful. When I look at Jesus and what God allowed him to go through as his own son, you see, sometimes the word for test, it can be likened to the word trial. And when I think of God the Father allowed his own son, Jesus, to be crucified on the cross for us. I realize my tests are so small in comparison that uh, Jesus, he, he went through that turmoil, turmoil there in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying for us and then praying, Lord, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, let it be done, but not my will, but your will be done, Father. Now, as we're approaching that moment when Jesus makes that prayer, this is where we're at in scripture. This is the last week of Jesus's life, what we're studying today. And so he's gearing up right now. He's headed towards the cross. Remember, we, we learned about Palm Sunday a, a couple weeks back in his triumphant entry. And now as he's still doing ministry, which to him, I know he's thinking, okay, my time here now is very short with the disciples with the Jewish people who I'm coming across. So I know he can feel that and sense it. And he's giving everything he's got to these people. And at this point in time, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus now. They've begun to plot against him because they're jealous of him. And they want him to die. They want him to get out of the picture because they're afraid of Rome. So they're plotting to how they might trap him in his words and how they might take him down and destroy Jesus. And this is where we're at. So we'll, we'll start reading in Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 20, because that's where we left off. It says this, speaking of the Pharisees, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So we're going to stop right here for just a, a, a brief moment and take a look at this passage. We're going to go further in the text. But you know I like to give you guys these points uh, at the beginning of uh, my studies at time in the verses. 
I'll, I'll tell you guys the point right off the bat of, of the first two verses that I see here in verses 20 and 21. Point number one, Jesus, liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we're going to see wh- wh- why Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And this is where they're, they're questioning his authority. So again, look at verse 20. It says, so they watched him. They watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So look, cancel culture, it didn't just come up out of nowhere. It's existed all the way since back then. These Pharisees and these Sadducees, they are trying to look at every word that Jesus is saying to see what they can use against him. So they're going to take his little transcript that he's posting on Instagram. No, he's not posting it on Instagram. And they're going to take it to Rome and be like, look it, Jesus is calling himself a king. What do you say about this, Caesar? And they're trying to trap him in his words. And, and also they're trying to trap him also with even the Jewish people. They want him to say something that would get the Jewish people mad, that is, is pro-Rome. But Jesus in all of this, he knows it's not yet his time. So though Jesus eventually would allow himself to be delivered to Rome, for now, he's in his wisdom, he's just silencing all their arguments and giving them wisdom to think about. In verse 21, it says, Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. So, when they call him teacher, that was a, a positive and good thing to call someone back then. They're basically calling him that, that someone who is above them in th- authority. Now, what I r- am reminded of is when someone calls Jesus good, I'm curious, like, are you saying that he's good because he's God? Or are you just saying simply that he's a good teacher? Because there's a vast difference. Because Jesus cannot be just a good teacher if he is not God. And here's why. And this is going to take me back to my point. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Because Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He said that he was going to be seated at the right hand of God. Now, if somebody walked in here today and said, I am God, how would you think of that person? You're like, wait a second. Uh, Especially, too, if they're kind of illustrating behavior that is not of God at all. You're like, this guy is a lunatic, right? (laughs) Or... He's lying, and he knows it, and he's lying to deceive people. Now, Jesus was neither of those two. He wasn't lying to people, and he wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't crazy. So perhaps his words were true, weren't they? Not perhaps. We know they were true. But to someone else who, let's say they're an honest skeptic, they can't say he's good and also say, well, he was a good teacher and, and be okay with the fact that he claimed to be God. But they're going to have to choose. In verse 22, 
now they're asking him. And, and I noticed in verse 21, by the way, that when they said, teach the way of God in truth, like tell us, you know, the, the right way. And, and I could just sense their, their deceit and their questions. In verse 22, it says, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And these are their insincere complaints here. And they also insincerely complimented him. But taxes. Now, some of the Jews, they viewed Rome the way that perhaps Nazis were viewed during the time of World War II, or still are viewed, where they were this evil force that had kind of taken captive of their land. And they're saying, should we pay taxes to these guys who we consider to be evil like Nazis, or uh, should we not pay taxes? And they're trying to tra trap Jesus in this moment. You see, in verse 23, it says, But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Because Jesus sees through their words, he begins to question their hearts. Now, one thing I am reminded of is, is you can't hide your motives from Jesus. You can't. Our hearts, our motives are laid out before him. Well, maybe perhaps you've heard people say, well, God knows my heart, brother. He knows like, oh, I'm not doing that bad. Or God knows my heart is what people will say. Well, whenever I hear somebody say that in a, in a way that's not appropriate, I'm reminded of this verse in Jeremiah chapter 17. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then the response to it is, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So you see, somebody says to me, insincerely well god knows my heart bro and they're like in sin i'm like yeah he knows it's desperately wicked and our hearts are desperately wicked and sometimes we can lie to ourselves and say well no the thing that i'm doing right now is a good thing and it's for god but deep down the holy spirit sometimes is convicting us that that still small voice of like no this is for your own selfishness and this is something we need to turn away from so we ask god to cleanse our hearts purify our hearts in verse 24 now, they're, they're asking, okay, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, show me a denarius in verse 24. He says, whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Now, when you look at, at the, the tribute coins in their time, Caesar Tiberius, he stamped his face on them. And they would have to use this coin in particular to pay for the Roman taxes. Now, when I think about money in our culture today, sometimes I kind of trip out on it. And the reason being is because it's a strange thing to have money or to have paper be so powerful in this world. When I really look at like the $100 bill and I'm just like, how is this little piece of paper, what does it really mean? It's, it's got someone's face on it. You know, Benjamin, and it's like, nah, like, but it's just paper. It, literally, it's just paper. But as a society, we've added value to that little piece of paper. We've placed 
time as, a, as an important thing that's related to it, effort and experience on that with, you know, uh, enough money you can go and uh, experience a, a cruise. You could go experience some leisure vacation and, and things of that nature. So we exp uh, uh, put experience in the, into that dollar amount. And money, it can be a useful tool in the hands of, of wise people. But money also, and actually more generally, it becomes a snare for most people. Now, money is not evil, right? Sometimes people, they, they have that, that Christianese kind of idea where it's like, oh, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the scriptures say, does it? What does the scripture say about money and the root of evil? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's when you're putting your desire and your focus upon finances rather than God. It's that love of money. And, and also too now, when, when I see where our finances are in the world today, which by the way, inflation, and you look at gas prices, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like $5 and something cents right now in California. If you're listening and you're not in California and you got cheaper gas prices, we envy you. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the other thing that's kind of crazy is what's happening with digital currency right now and Bitcoin and Dogecoin and people are trying to fly to the moon on these little stock market uh, of electronic uh, currencies. And what I see with it is that I, I see a one world society coming closer and closer to even our finances where eventually all these monies that right now Right now, Russia is going through this huge financial impact because of the war that they're doing. And right now, money, it just fluctuates left and right. Interest rates go up and down because of the war that's in Ukraine. And I, I see all that. It, it's, it's, it has a flaw to it. So I can really easily see how one day someone's going to come up and be like, look, we're going to do away with the currency system of the world of all these different currencies. And we're going to make, just make it one currency. And it's going to be Dogecoin. I just can't. I don't know what it's going to be. But it's probably going to be some sort of electronic currency. And that's why we won't be able, well, not we, but people who are left behind and don't receive the mark, they're not going to be able to buy, sell, or work without that mark of the beast. Now, back where we are in culture with the Bible, under the Roman law, they were required to pay the taxes. But there would be these zealous Jews who did not like Rome, and they were ready to start wars over this. And they were always ready to start a little rebellion against Rome. So what the Pharisees are doing by asking Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, is they want Jesus to either say two things. They want him to say, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And by saying that, the Jews, some of them being zealous, would be like, oh, man, like, I thought Jesus was on our side. Like, oh, like, he, he's, he's for Rome. He's pro-Rome, and he's for the government. They wanted him to either say that, or they wanted him to say, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Which then they would go to Rome and be like, hey, this guy Jesus, he's saying not to pay taxes to you. So they're trying to trap him with their questions, their dishonest questions.
but the wisdom of God through this. Remember, Jesus in his wisdom, he exercises divinity at times. Well, he's always exercising divinity, but he has 100% divinity and 100% man also, human, also God. 100% God, 100% man. And I love what he says. Let's read it in verse 24 and 25 one more time. He says, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Wow. Love the wisdom of Jesus right there. He just completely silences them now with this answer. And I realize, look, it's foolish to think that God needs your money. God does not need your money. In fact, the psalmist Asaph, one thing that he wrote, and I'm I'm skipping a a point, but I'll get back to it. Asaph wrote in Psalm chapter 50, verses 9 through 14, Asaph wrote, I will not take a bull from your house. This is God speaking. Nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. This is what God is saying. He's saying, I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving. And pay your vows to the Most High. So look, at this is my point here. Look, God, he doesn't need your money. Well, my point is in my second point of my study, point two, God wants your heart. Now, if you guys ever get to hear a, a preacher who's saying, look, God's work, we need you to start sending those checks in because God's work cannot be done without you sending that check in. No, there's something wrong because I know my God is not a God who is worried about the finances. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills we just read. So I'm not going to say that God's work cannot be done without you guys sending your checks in, okay? But for today, and Armida locked the doors. We're going to pass the basket around. And if you guys, I just sense that someone's going to put a thousand dollars in the basket today. I'm just kidding. No, that's not going to happen in this church, okay? We don't, we don't do that. You know that. <laughs> there we go. Now, the offering that a believer, that we as believers should give to the Lord, should come from the place, from the heart of, Lord, you have blessed me, and everything I have, everything I own is yours. My marriage is yours. My job is yours. My vehicles, my finances, my, my dogs, they're yours. Everything I have, God, it's yours. And I give it to you. And that's what God wants, is that heart that just realizes, look, we are God. It's not that we are God's, but God owns us. That God's redeemed us. And there is one area, since we're talking on the topic of, of testing Jesus, There is one area that God did allow for us to test him in, and it was this. This is the only area that I could find in the Bible, okay? Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. 
God speaks through the prophet. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's beautiful right there. So we see when we bless the Lord, we cannot outbless God. And when we bless the Lord, he has this, this spiritual agreement where he will open up the doors for us in he- from heaven so that we can receive blessing as well. And sometimes it's not always financial blessing. But we know this, where God guides, God will provide. And when we pour into his kingdom, we're never left empty-handed. And these are those spiritual rules that we can follow. So I, I encourage you guys, I, I'm reminded here, and I've seen some of you guys, you guys remind me of that widow with the one might. And I love and I pray for you guys because I see, man, look at the heart of these people who are coming to this church and they're putting in their little might. And I'm like, wow, that, that just blesses my heart to see that, that faithfulness, the faith that you have not in this church, but in the Lord. And, and as you guys are doing that, I see you guys are getting blessed. And it, and it blesses my heart. Now, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, meaning do we still have to pay taxes? Absolutely. If we don't want to be afraid of the IRS and the, and the authorities that there be, then we need to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then render to God the things that belong to God. Now, if the Pharisee who was asking Jesus this question, if he was an honest Pharisee, perhaps at this point he would have asked Jesus, well, what belongs to God? And then Jesus, I know from scriptures, his desire was for men to understand this truth. He might ask, well, whose image are you guys made in? response to that would be we're made in the image of God so then render us ourselves to God we belong to God we're made in his image now do you guys think that God wants your money more than your heart no he doesn't want your money more than your heart in fact when you give and your heart's not in it there is no spiritual blessing you get the the accolades of men here on this earth perhaps And that's it, it's over. Now, if someone came to the Lord and gave them all their idols and all their vices and said, Lord, I'm gonna give you these idols, I'm gonna give you these vices in my life, but then walked away from the altar themselves, what good is that? They need to put themselves on the altar. See, if you take a drug addict, and you put them, uh, maybe he's an alcoholic also, you put them in a rehab, and they come out cured where they're, they're not addicted to alcohol or drugs anymore. All we've done at that point is we've made a sober sinner who still needs salvation. So there has to be that heart experience. And I've gone to rehabs before. The Lord, in, in one circumstance in my life, I went to a rehab to go do worship there while there was going to be a, a pastor giving the word, and I went to go do worship. And I saw a longtime friend 
in that rehab there. And part of my heart was broken for him because this is where he's at. And another part of my heart was excited because he was trying to get better. And then I had a conversation with him while I was there. And I could see that his heart and his focus was just on getting clean, but it, that was it. There was, there was no, because this was a Christian rehab, there, there was no heart towards trying to press in and accept Christ as his Lord and Savior. It was just, I'm just doing this because I want to do better, and I, I want people to look at me better, and, and that's it. And I warned him, and I told him, and my heart bro broke for him at that point, and I said, look, that's awesome, but like, you have to understand that Jesus is the only one who can really help you with this, because you're going to leave this place, and there is going to be so much sin and temptation right at that door that we, you can't face it on your own. You need Christ to give you a new life, a new spirit to be able to fight these things. And I still pray for this man. So God wants our heart. And sometimes we think that all the, if we could just cut out uh, the, this vice in my life, if I could just cut off the, the alcohol, if I could just cut off uh, the pornography, if I could just cut, cut off the, the weed or, or, or the, the greed and the hate, if I could just cut those things off, my life would be so much better. But in reality, if we're not just putting Christ first, then we're not going to have any power in it. It's empty. God wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to follow a law, legal system so that we can be made more righteous. He wants to have a relationship with you. And guess what? Through the relationship with Christ, those things just come naturally. As you're reading your word in a relationship with God, because that's God speaking to you through his word. As you're praying to God, that's you also speaking to God. That relationship's going to grow, and we're going to like more so the things of God, and we're going to begin to hate more and more the sinful things in our life. And we grow in that. In verse 26. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people and they marveled at his answer and kept silence. See, they're, they're amazed by the wisdom of the, the God-man Jesus. Now, in this next portion of scripture, we're gonna have uh, the Sadducees are, I referred to. And I, I wanted to real quick just give us a, a brief introduction of who are the Sadducees and versus who are the Pharisees. Because we, we see the Sadducees in the Bible. We also see the Pharisees. Well, what's the difference? Well, just so you guys know, these are two groups of the same Jewish religion that they actually, both groups together, made up what's called the Sanhedrin. So there was one religious community in Judaism called the Sanhedrin made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And they had different opinions on the aspects of the religion. For example, the Pharisees, they believed in supernatural things like angels and demons and heaven and hell and so on. But the Sadducees, they did not believe in the supernatural things of their religion. And the Sadducees also, they were of high status and they were connected with the Roman government and they had a lot of old money in their group of people. 
and, and they, when they would hear about Jesus talking about the resurrection, they'd be like, oh, that's foolish. So the resurrection, what is that? Whereas the Pharisees, they were these guys who were merchants who started to get new money and some of them were business owners who also practiced the religion and they grew, but they were more connected with the common people. So we have here the, the Sadducees now coming on the scene. And then in verse 27, it says, Then some of the Sadducees, who denied that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now this is another, another test that these guys are trying to give Jesus right here. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to really make both the Torah and the idea of the resurrection seem foolish. Now, they're bringing up this law that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And this law, basically, it states that if there is a married man who dies and he has children, it was his brother, oh, I'm sorry, and he does not have children, there's a married man, he dies, never having children. It would then be his brother's responsibility to marry his wife. And the first child that they have would be considered his brother's son, not his own son. And then the subsequent children after that can be his own children. Now, there was a clause. This is kind of funny. There was a clause in this whole law, this agreement that the man, he could refuse to marry the brother's wife. But if he was going to refuse to marry the brother's wife, they would go to the courts, go to the judges, and then he would have to take off his sandal, and the woman would spit in his face. And, hand him the, and he would hand her the sandal. And he would be known as the man who had his sandal removed. <laughs> And it was kind of a shameful thing, but it was just something that they said, okay, like this is what you're going to have to endure if you don't do this. Yeah, the chunkla. <laughs> now, the Sadducees are going to use this law and see, they're like, look how foolish this law is about the brother having to marry the wife of his brother. Now, in verse 29, they're going to give an example. They're going to say, now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. So they're going to give Jesus this example. Look, you got these seven brothers. The first one, he dies. He doesn't have any children. So then it keeps, the next brother keeps marrying her. If I was that fourth brother, I would have been like, or third brother, I would have been like, sorry, man. There's a curse on you, lady. Like, I'm not going to marry you. <laughs> but in this example that they give, all of them have this one wife, the same wife, and they all die, including the wife at the end. So they're saying, who's going to be her husband in heaven? And this leads me to my third point of the study today. Have an eternal perspective. Because I, I, the question basically 
for myself and for us today is will we have marriage in heaven? Are we going to be married in heaven? Well, let's look what Jesus says about it. In verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. All right, so people who are heartthrobs and, you know, you love your spouse. I hate to break your heart. This is including mine. I'm talking to myself right now. But there's no marriage in heaven. Oh. There's no marriage in heaven. And I hope for none of, no one here, I hope that that doesn't sound like a blessing to you guys. <laughs> no, it is. So listen, now here on earth, I see that God makes and places marriage in a holy regard, okay? So, so do we. I have a few verses that, that call about this because there are some people who believe that if you get married, then you're less holy than those who are staying single, which some people have that gift of singleness. When I, before I, I got married, I knew I didn't have the gift of singleness. My heart desired to be married. But marriage is honorable. We see this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So, Right there, we got marriage. God sees it as honorable. The marriage bed is undefiled. That means that with consent, anything goes in the marriage bed. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So we have to keep marriage holy. We don't allow infidelity. We don't allow fornication into the marriage. Now there's another verse that talks about the goodness of marriage of why God sees it in, in honorable ways. In Proverbs 18, verse 22 says... He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. See, it doesn't say who, he who finds a wife finds a headache. No, it says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. This is a blessing that men have is to find a wife. And I'm reminded in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's beautiful. And see, it's, it's leave and cleave. And that's what, I, I, that's what we're doing now. I'm, I'm leaving the, the chicken coop, and I'm going to go start my own chicken coop now. And you know, we got the house, so praise the Lord. Cool. <laughs> and I, and I, I've loved being with my in-laws. They, they actually, too, I know I'm going on a rabbit trail, they helped us to save for a whole, almost a whole year to be able to do this. But now I'm seeing the Lord providing for us so that we can, you know, have our, our family. Um, now, married people here today, if you guys are listening, and those of you who desire to be married, because I understand there's some of you guys who are desiring to be married one day, this is the only lifetime that we're going to get to have with our spouses, with your husband, with your wife your future wife, future spouse. So we have to honor God with our marriage. We only get this one. 
Now, I want to encourage the spouses here that we should be encouraging our our spouse towards the Lord, always lifting them up towards the Lord and not discouraging them away from the Lord. And we want to do that. And, And you know, there's times in my life when I feel like I could get a little selfish with my wife. When I see, hey, uh, I'm, I'm coming home from work and, uh, you know, I, I see Lisette's got some time. Maybe today she can make me some of her really bomb enchiladas. But she's like, oh, I'm going to get ready for the, for the women's ministry. And I'm like, wait, no, you have to stay. And, you know, I have to stop my selfishness in it because I know that she's doing something that God's called her to. And because of that, I'm like right on. Even if sometimes I feel like, man, I, I want her to be here. And that's something that, you know what, in ministry, you guys are going to see that the family, it does cost. And that's something me and her are praying about, about God giving us wisdom. Because I know one day, it, there's going to come those struggles when we, in the future, when we have kids, long time in the future. <laughs> when we have kids, there's going to come a struggle where I'm going to have to ask God for wisdom and discernment on, Lord, am I called to be at the church today? Am I called to be here with my wife, with the kids? And I already know, like, that's going to be something that as ministers, as as servants of the Lord, that we're going to struggle with. But I know that when God puts a calling in your life, he's, he's going to honor that. And that's why, too, if you're single here today and you feel that God has placed a calling on your life, you want to make sure you find someone who is ready to go with that calling with you, to run alongside you in it. So I want to encourage my wife towards the Lord, and I exhort all of us here in this room, exert, exhort and encourage our spouses towards the Lord. Now, so we, we see that Jesus is saying, look, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage bed in heaven. But what we do with our bodies here today, it matters. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord and the Holy Spirit dwells within it. And in the Bible, it says, shall we take our temple and join it with a harlot? See, that's something that I don't want to do and that God calls sin. Now, if there's no marriage bed in heaven, I know... A lot of maybe the young people are like, well, wh- why is heaven going to be awesome? Or what's, what's going to be so awesome? It's going to be, look, first of all, purify your mind. Second of all, Jesus himself is going to be so amazing that the Savior, the healer, and the Redeemer is going to make these earthly blessings that we have here seem so unappealing. Now, I, I, I thought of an illustration on how to really drive this point home. So there was a time when I once got to interview a caterpillar named Casey in my backyard, okay? So he was living in my backyard, and I, I came to him, and I, uh, I was like, hey, what's it like living in my backyard? And he was like, oh, it's great. He's like, I get to eat all these vegetables in your backyard and I, for, for, I get to crawl on all these little plants and, and trees and I just eat all of them. And I got all these legs, which helps me to climb on all your little plants. And I get to eat all the plants. And these legs are awesome because I have so many of them 
It makes it really easy for me to just eat all I want. I'm like, wow, that's, that's really neat. And then he has the ability to just crawl on any wall and surface and go everywhere because he's got all these cool little legs. And then one day I, I went in my backyard on, on a separate day to check on this caterpillar and I didn't see him. And I was like, where'd he go? But I saw this weird little cocoon looking thing just hanging off of a tree. And I was like, what? What is that? I was like, huh, that's weird. And then the next day I go back out there, same thing. But the cocoon's broken and I see this butterfly. And he's flying around from, from flower to flower. I'm like, wow. I'm like, that's a cool butterfly. And I ha- start to have a conversation with the butterfly. And, he, and I'm like, wow, have you seen the little caterpillar that was hanging out here? And he's like, it's me. I'm Casey. I'm the caterpillar. And I'm like, wow, you transformed. And he's like, yeah, I've transformed. And I was like, how's life in my backyard now? And he's like, it's great. I could fly from flower to flower and just enjoy all this nectar. And I'm like, oh, well, do you miss all the little legs that you had? He's like, oh, no way. I don't miss all those legs. You see, I have all these wings, and they're way better than the legs where I don't have to crawl on the hot floor anymore in the hot sun. I could just fly from branch to branch. I wouldn't trade it for a thing. And see the illustration I'm giving here. It's like when we're in heaven, the things that we thought were so great in this life, it's like, no, no way. I want that new body. I want that presence with Jesus 100%. So let's not get caught up in the things of this life. And I do talk to caterpillars. In verse 37, continuing on, Jesus is explaining now, continuing in in marriage. He says, look, or about the resurrection. He says, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. See, what Jesus is saying here, look, when Moses was talking to the the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he didn't say that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's basically saying that God still is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now and forever, meaning that these men, they're still alive. They're still living. So God is the God of the living, meaning that when we pass on from this life onto the next, we are alive. And to really drive this point home, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, because I want to look at this heavenly realm for a moment of what is to come in this next life. So turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, we're looking to look at the first eight verses. Which we're going to be studying actually in in a few months from now. We're going to be diving into 2 Corinthians as we're almost at the end of 1 Corinthians. All right. Is everybody there? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're almost there, looking up, people are there, people are there, got it, got it, good, good. All right, so he says in verse one, for we know that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. 
that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, the body, we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So he's basically explaining, look, these bodies, they're falling to the floor. They're starting to die on us. And we groan in these bodies. We experience pain and suffering and sickness. But we're looking forward to a different body. Continuing on in the same place in verse 5, he says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, here we go, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the moment that the lights go out here, the heart stops, brain function is gone. The electronics in our brain are done for. When we are absent from this body as a believer, we get to be present with the Lord. Amen. That's beautiful. And we're, you know, that gives me an assurance by the Holy Spirit that I have that eternal home waiting for us. So, you know, we look forward to that. And there's no soul sleep, by the way. Some people, they have this doctrine where when you die, your soul goes to sleep and you're going to stay asleep until the time of the resurrection. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible, we just read it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's beautiful. In verse 39, back, sorry, go back to Luke's gospel, chapter 20. Yes, Bible scholars, we are. It's turning our pages today. That's good. That's why I like you guys to have the, the real Bible in front of you uh, rather than the phones. I prefer it because that way you get to, to learn the books of the Bible. But continuing on in verse 39, it says, Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. See, they can't trap him with words and wisdom that they thought they had. So what they're going to end up doing is using Judas to betray him. And we're going to see that in a few weeks from today. Now, continuing in verse 41. And he said to them, now Jesus is going to say things to them. He's going to say, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now in this passage in particular, it's always been a, a little bit of a head scratcher to me when I was studying the Bible. Um, but Jesus, look, they were trying to trap him in, his, in their, his words. And what I see here, first of all, Jesus, he doesn't turn around and try to trap them. But what he does in his questions towards them is he wants to make them have a deeper look at what they believed about the Messiah. And this is why he's saying this. And this leads to me 
to my fourth point of our study today. Point four, Jesus is the Lord God. Now, in those verses we, we read, you know that David, he's talking about David, King David, when he's writing in the Psalms, that he would call the Messiah his Lord. Now, this means that the Messiah is not only the son of David, but he is also Lord over David. So if the Messiah is Lord over David, he's calling his grandson basically Lord. Back then, this was a big cultural no-no. Because back then, a grandfather would never call his son Lord. So Jesus is saying, look, how is it that David would call his grandson Lord over him? And he's making them rethink the way they view the Messiah because they thought the Messiah was just going to be just a man, but the Messiah was not just a man. We know he was 100% man and 100% God. And that's beautiful. So David prophetically called his grandson, who is Jesus, Lord. And when I say grandson, you know it's great, 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 great grandson. Now, he's basically saying, look, don't you realize even the man who is the Messiah would be greater than his father, David? That's awesome. In verse 45, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now these last verses are my last point of the study today. So point five, last point of the study, beware hypocrisy. Look out for it. Watch out for it, not only in your own life, but watch out for it in the lives of these men and women who will try to lead people away. He's talking here about the Pharisees, the scribes, how they love to wear the long, extravagant robes, showing, first of all, that they were extravagant. And second of all, when you're wearing a long robe, you're not working. So they were, too, they, they weren't busy serving they also, he talks about that they were greedy for recognition. They loved it when people would say, oh, rabbi, good teacher, it's good to see you. And sometimes we have that, that greed in us to be greedy for recognition that we need to get away from. And he said, look, they're, these, they're devouring widows. And I, I could imagine that these rabbis back then, that they were doing things to these poor widows to gain off of them somehow. And, and a lot of Bible scholars, they think that at that time that there was a, or they, they see actually historically that there was a, a rabbinic teaching that the teachers would tell these poor widows, oh, it, the greatest act that you can do is to bless a rabbi with money. And the teachers are what, who are teaching this truth, which is like, what? So they would have this greed in them for finances also and they would have these long prayers showing look their their false spirituality and their fake holiness i'm reminded that there is a an episode of everybody loves raymond 
uh, where uh, Frank has this one of his neighbor, uh, or I think his do- his someone come over comes over to his house, and he's like, supposed to be a Christian guy, and he starts praying over dinner, and he, he finishes the the prayer, and then Frank's just sitting there, this old grumpy guy, he, he looks at him, he goes, I could do better than that, and, and it's like, wait, this is a prayer, you know, prayers look, they don't always have to be long in order to be powerful. I think uh, of Peter asking for Jesus, he simply says, Lord, save me, as he's falling into the water. Short, powerful prayer. And lastly, in verse 47, that these type of hypocrites, they're going to receive the greater condemnation. Meaning, look, if you've broken these sins and you know the truth and you're leading people astray, Jesus said it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than stumble someone. Well, people say, oh, sin is sin, right? Sin is sin. And the Bible says that there are different consequences for sin, different sins. So there's greater condemnations, there's greater sins. Now, I get it. Like, if you break one area of the commandment, you're guilty of the whole law. That's true. But we want to run away from this type of of lifestyle, of the hypocrisy. So we see in our study today, look, there's things that we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of hypocrisy. Remind ourselves that, look, Jesus, he's our Savior, he's our Lord, he's our God. And with that, remember, have the eternal perspective this week and on the weeks to come. But ask God for that in your life. Because God wants our hearts. And we see Jesus, he is our Lord and Savior. 